documented years after the Lord Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. This portion of the Passover that was included in the Passover meal, in the celebration, I firmly believe was planted into the meal and the observation of the meal by Jewish believers. They included this in the meal in order to testify of the resurrection of Christ. I think it was the way that early believers involved the gospel in the Seder meal, in the Passover. Today, if you ask someone about uh, Afi Komen, they will tell you that it's basically uh, a dessert. They'll say, well, that's what is saved until the last portion, the last aspect of, of the meal. Uh, they'll tell you that uh, Afi Komen means comes after, comes after. It's something that they implemented in order for the children to have something to do in order uh, to keep their interest and keep them involved in the Passover meal. It's something that was reserved for the last part of that Passover meal. But is that really what it is? Is that really what it is? Or is it a message to those who are religiously observing the Passover that their Messiah has come? That their Messiah has come? Is it really a presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ inside the Passover meal? The word itself, afikomen, is a Greek word. And, and how in the world did a Greek word end up in a Hebrew uh, observation? That would be my f- first question. But the word afikomen is a Greek word which literally means he came. That's what it means. It means he came. No one knows when in the Passover this was implemented, when this portion of the, the, the Passover meal, this part was included. They know it had to be during the first century at some point, but the Afikoman has been part of the Passover for a long, long time. And you say, well, what is the Afikoman? Just exactly what is that? Well, if you were to go to a Passover meal and you go through the entire Seder meal, At the end, uh, you'll see them doing something that I think is intriguing. I think it really is a presentation of the gospel. What they have done is they've taken a linen bag, and in this linen bag, they put three pieces of unleavened bread, uh, three pieces of matzah bread in this one bag. Not the first piece of bread, not the last piece of of bread, but the middle cracker is taken and broken. Then that middle cracker is taken out, broken, and it's hidden away so that after the meal, the children get to go and find it, and a reward is given to the child that finds that piece of broken, unleavened bread. So, Let me get this straight. 
you have one bag, and in that bag are three individual pieces of bread. And that middle piece is broken and hidden away until it is found. What you have here is the bag representing the Trinity, the one God that we worship. The three pieces of bread represent God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It is the second piece of bread that someone, and I think this someone who got this started, loved the Lord Jesus, understood the Trinity, understood what had happened to Christ, and they were able to get this to be part of the Passover meal that their kinsmen, the, the Jews, the Hebrews who were celebrating, were actually observing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The middle piece was taken out and broken. That's the crucifixion. And hidden away, that is the burial. And then children, the children were sent to find it and bring it forth, that is the resurrection, and there is a reward given to those who find it. What a blessing that is. Every Jewish family, as they observed the Passover meal this past week, were presenting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am convinced that the early Jewish believers implemented this, and it caught on how glorious is that? But also how sad. How sad that the gospel is being presented and they have been temporarily blinded and just do not see it. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that Christ is our Passover. Our faith and our trust is in Him. And by faith we have believed in the gospel in the gospel of the grace of God, that gospel that was given to the Apostle Paul, that good news that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. That good news that He was delivered for your offenses, and He was raised again for your justification. I'm here to tell you this morning that the greatest news that the world has ever heard is in Matthew 28 when the angel told Mary, He is not here. He is risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. What a tremendous, tremendous message that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have the opportunity to hear. And people want to know. People are curious during this time. What an opportunity as people ask us about our faith, about what we think about all that's going on in the world. What an opportunity to share the gospel and tell them that Jesus saves, to make sure they know that God's got this, that He is on His throne. He knows exactly what's going on, that He is in charge. And by faith, we can trust Him. You know, on the way into church this morning, uh, we stopped and picked up some donuts. And as I went into the store to, to get the donuts, uh, the, the lady there, uh, there was a customer, and and as he was there, she said, as I was walking out, I'd already paid for the donuts. I was getting ready to leave. I was walking out the door, and, and she said, oh, oh, could, could you wait just a second? And I went, was, okay. 
I'm not sure what was going on, but I said, sure. And so I stopped, and the other customer paid, and I kept six foot, you know, they had a line there that I had to stand and go through all that. And uh, he left. She said, you, you're a pastor, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I, I am. She said, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for my customers? Would you, would you pray God's blessings on, on, on this and, and on my family? And I said, oh, of course I'll pray. I said, I make sure that we pray on Wednesday. I'll add you to the list. I said, I make sure we'll pray. I said, but what about us praying right now? She said, would you please, with tears in her eyes. So right there in the donut shop, we prayed for this woman and her family and for her customers. Uh, I'm not sure that would have happened with, were, were it not for all this that's going on right now. Folks, I'm telling you, we have the opportunity, maybe like never before, to share the gospel of Christ. And we need to be faithful to doing that. Because you never know when somebody's going to say, will you tell me about the Lord Jesus? Would you tell me about why you don't fear tomorrow? Why you can face tomorrow and everyone else seems to be so fearful? Folks, it's only because the tomb is empty and we serve a risen Savior. This morning, I want us to talk about the death of this Savior. I want us to talk about his burial, and I want us to talk about his resurrection. And just as surely as he came the first time, he's coming again. God's word tells us that in the fullness of time, Christ came, born of a woman. And be assured that in the fullness of time, he's going to return to catch the church, the body of Christ, away. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. In this chapter, there's so much that's, that's been going on. And in the first few verses, it tells us about the, the plot to kill our Lord. It tells us how that the scribes and the Pharisees and the and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, the high priest, all of those conspired as to how they were going to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. They should have known better. These were the religious leaders. These were the people who understood the Old Testament, or they were supposed to. They're the ones that are supposed to have understood what the Scripture said concerning their coming Messiah, the one they longed for. Supposedly the one that they taught would come. Yet when he did come, their whole desire was to, was to kill him. You say, well, why? Well, we talked about that last week. John 11 verse 48 tells us why. Tells us that they were afraid if they allowed this man to live, that everyone would believe on him and that Rome was going to come and take away their place, take away their status, take away their power. And that was much more important to them than the Messiah, unfortunately. Remember, Christ had already called them a bunch of vipers. He had already told them that they were whited sepulchers. They loved their power, they loved their status, and they feared Rome 
So all they could think of in order to preserve their position was to kill, destroy the very one that was fulfilling every one of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, what the prophets had said was going to happen when the Messiah came, that they should have understood because it was right there. Not only was it written, but it was being played out in front of them. Yet in Matthew 26, we find that there was a plot to kill the Lord. As we read on, we find that Mary anoints of the Lord Jesus. Uh, here we find that uh, she anoints his head. This was two days before the Passover. She had anointed his head uh, uh, six days before. She had anointed his feet six days before the Passover, preparing his body for burial. So here in Matthew 26, we have Mary once again anointing the Lord Jesus for burial. First, it was his feet. Now it is his head at different, at different times. Part of Matthew 26, we have Judas agreeing to betray the Lord Jesus. And they agree on a psalm, a sum. They agree on a sum, uh, 30 pieces of silver. Exactly what the scripture tells us in Zechariah, he was going to be sold for. You'd think that the red flags and the, the whistles and the whole, everything would have gone off and they would have said, hey, wait a minute. And it even foretold what they were going to do with the money that uh, he ends up giving back. Uh, the scriptures, the Lord bear it all out they should not have missed it but because of the evil intent of their heart they did and the fourth thing that happens is the preparation day begins as the Lord tells the disciples they need to prepare for the Passover meal verse 17 of chapter 26 and it says, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with thy disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. Now even this was part of the preparation day. This was Nisan the 14th. It had already begun. This would have been Tuesday of the week, Tuesday night after sundown as they were preparing. I'm not going to get into the Good Friday aspect of it, but those of you well, I'm not going to get into the Good Friday aspect of it. But the Lord Jesus was not crucified on a Friday. And if you want to disagree, give me a call because I'd love to talk to you about it. Nor is it called Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. But we're not going to get into that this morning either. But the tradition of men just seems to creep in and just zaps this glorious truth of so much power so much truth but anyway now when evening was come which was sunset sundown 
on Nisan the 14th, which was a Tuesday night. And as they, as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and he said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good, it had, it had been good for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast said. The next verse, verses institute uh, that, that supper as the Lord break the bread and he served the wine, the cup, and he talked about the blood uh, being that blood that was shed for him, his body that was going to be broken. So he initiates the Lord's supper there. Peter's denial is foretold. The Lord tells him, you're going you're gonna to deny me before the rooster crows three times. Or, or before the ro rooster crows, you will have denied me three times, Peter. Peter, no, 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 that's not, that's not going to happen. But we know it did. Then after the meal, the Lord takes, takes the, the disciples and he says, pray with me. And he takes three of them and he goes into the garden of Gethsemane. And there he begins praying. And he prays, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And so the disciples could not stay awake during this time because it was late Tuesday evening on the sun the 14th. And remember, the 14th is key because that's the preparation day. That's the day that in Exodus 12, they were instructed to uh, prepare the Passover lamb and exactly when they were to destroy or to slaughter the Passover lamb. So this was an important preparation day, but here it was Tuesday evening. It was getting later and later, and they had already had the supper. Uh, Judas had already left to betray him. Christ had spent the time in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had spent time praying, and the disciples couldn't, the ones who were there with him couldn't stay awake, and they kept falling asleep because it was so late at night either Tuesday night late or early Wednesday morning. But they got so sleepy they couldn't stay awake. Verse 42 of chapter 26, the Lord prays, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Verses 47 on down, it talks about the betrayal and the arrest of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It talks about how Judas betrays him. It talks about how uh, they were able to recognize him because Judas comes and, and plants a, a kiss and a hug on him. It was dark. There were no street lamps there in the Gethsemane. There was no way. It was just people looked like shadows. You know, only those that were most familiar with him would be able to uh, recognize him as Judas was very familiar with him. So it was Judas that goes up to him and betrays him. And that's how they know they could take or which one to take. 
chapter, or verse 57 of this same chapter 26, we have the Lord taken before false witnesses. And not only is he taken before false witnesses, which is certainly the breaking of one of the commandments, of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. I think when the Holy Spirit gave that to Moses, they had this exact uh, situation coming. Don't bear false witness, but here the nation of Israel is breaking that law. But not only were they breaking this law because they are going to get these false witnesses to come in and try to uh, uh, give them something so that they can uh, kill him over. But the other thing that they're doing is they're holding the trial at night. It was against Jewish law for them to hold the trial at night. But this was at night. So many of the Sanhedrin, many of the, uh, the ruling religious uh, groups, they would not be present. So that was the reason why it was against Jewish law. It had to be during the day. It had to be when everyone could be there, especially a trial this, this serious. But yet they are breaking the Jewish law by having it at uh, either late night or early, early Wednesday morning. Uh, they have... Uh, brought in false witnesses, but even those false witnesses could not get him, or they couldn't even get him with these false witnesses. Verse 59 of chapter 26. Now the chief priest and elders with all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. And at the last came two false witnesses. And said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose, this high priest being Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas because it was just a couple of days before this, about six days before this, is the one who had prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the sins of his people, that he was going to give his life. Remember, it was Caiaphas that told those who had gathered at the Sanhedrin when they were talking about how we're going to kill him, how we're going to get rid of him. He's doing all these miracles. We can't have somebody going around healing the sick, causing the lame to, to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and raising the dead. We can't have that. And it was Caiaphas that said, oh, you don't realize the seriousness of this. Why? And he prophesied. It was the Holy Spirit put on his heart. He was the high priest to basically say he's going to die for the sins of his people. And not only is he going to die for the sins of his people, but he is going to fulfill Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 33 about the gathering of the children of Israel. This was the high priest that was saying it, but they ignored it. And so now here's this same fellow at this judgment hall wanting to pronounce the Son of God guilty. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses say against you? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, it was Christ himself. I adjure you, I beg you, I plead with you by the living God 
the Lord Jesus could have said, yes. That thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, thou hast said. Well, when did he say it? Well, he said it back over in John 11, or John 12. Or, or John 11, and then, and then all that took place in John, John 12. Thou hast said. You have said that I'm the Christ. You've already said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now we have heard his blasphemy. blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. He is guilty of death. Now, what's interesting about that is blasphemy calls for stoning, not crucifixion. Blasphemy requires, under the Jewish law, according to Leviticus 24, verse 16, what is required is stoning, not crucifixion. So what changes? What happens? Well, number one, Scripture wants to make sure we understand that His curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's exactly what's about to happen to the Lord Jesus. But here are the Sanhedrin that, that they were meeting, that He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in His face, and they buffeted Him, and others smote Him, uh, with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, you Christ. Who is he that smote thee? Who is he that hit you? Tell us if you can do it. Well, I got news for you folks. He could not only have told them who did it, he could have told them what their mama had on right then. He could have told them exactly what they had for breakfast. He could have told them anything and everything at that very moment. And they could mock him. They could ridicule him all they wanted. As a matter of fact, what all they were doing is fulfilling Isaiah 50, verse 6. They said that's exactly what was going to happen to Christ. The next portion, portion of 26, we have Peter denies the Lord Jesus. He denied him three times before the rooster crowed. In chapter 27, when the morning was come, this is Wednesday, Wednesday morning, the sun, the 14th, or preparation day. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. See, they finally all gathered. They must have heard what had transpired that day. And they said, he's guilty, he has to die. When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. The next portion of the scripture tells us that Judas regrets what he's done. When the scripture says here he repented, it's a totally different Greek word from, from being sorry for his sin. It means basically he regrets due to circumstances what he's done. Verse 4, Judas says, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to that. 
And so he gives the money back again, a fulfillment of Scripture. They buy a field with it, exactly what the Scripture said was going to happen with it hundreds of years prior. And so while he's there before Pilate, Pilate listens to him, then he sends him to Herod. We, we know in, in, uh, in uh, Luke 22 that he, that he goes before uh, Herod, and Herod is all excited because the Scripture tells us that Herod wants to see a miracle. He wants to see him do something, so he's excited. Hey, I've, all, I've always wanted to meet you, Jesus. That's what Herod says. But Christ never answers him one word. So it goes to Herod, I mean, goes to Pontius Pilate, and he, then he goes to Herod. I think what's interesting is six different occasions during this time, someone talks about the fact that this man that you have found guilty is innocent and is just. Six times starts with Judas. Then it goes to Pilate's wife. Then Pilate himself, up to the time of the centurion. The centurion, as he sees what's taking place at Calvary, when he sees what's taking place as the world, the universe convulses, or at least the earth convulses at the death of the one who sustains, who created. The centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. So evidence after evidence, testimony after testimony, Make sure that we understand that he is innocent. He is just. And he goes before Pontius here at the end in verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, You say so, thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. He's not even trying to defend himself. Talk about the silence of the Lamb. <laughs> that is truly the silence of the Lamb, but what it is is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. That should have sent up red flags. That should have sent up bells and whistles. That should have set off alarms in their head that Scripture is unfolding here before their eyes. Verse 15, at that feast the governor was accustomed to releasing unto the people a prisoner whom they would, or prisoner of their choosing. The nation of Israel could have chosen to ask for Christ. It was the Passover, and this, this uh, governor had it in his authority to release to, unto them a notable prisoner. And the nation of Israel had the opportunity to say, give us the one that causes our blind to see. Give us the one that raises the dead. The ones that had just a few days prior had, had uh, heralded uh, Hosanna, you know, save us, as he rode into Jerusalem. Just a few days earlier, they were calling for him. 
to be their king. Now they're about to call for his crucifixion. So it was expected. It was a notable thing for Pilate to release. Verse 16, And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas. We know from God's word that he was a traitor, that he was a murderer. He was a murderer. Acts 3.14 says that he was a murderer. Now, we need to understand that the Jewish law allows for a murderer to be what? Crucified, where if you blasphemed, blasphemed, it was stoning. So he was literally taking the place of a tried and convicted murderer, Barabbas. When they said, free Barabbas. I guarantee you Barabbas had never raised the dead. He had taken a life, but he had never given it back. So from, right from the very beginning here of this trial, of this uh, conviction, the Lord Jesus was taking the place of a sinner, of someone who was condemned to die. Sort of like me. And sort of like you. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called the Messiah? Christ. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. And when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and elders persuaded the multitude that they would ask Barabbas and to destroy Jesus, the religious leaders of Israel, the ones who should have known. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the two will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all said unto him, Let him be crucified. Not stoned, which is the punishment for blasphemy, but crucified, which is the punishment for murder, the ultimate, the ultimate sin. And the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when, Peter, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult, an uproar was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. You see to it. And then answered all the people and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. It's a pretty horrid thing for them to say, isn't it? His blood be upon us. They were so sure of themselves. They were so certain that they were going to have their way. Let his blood be upon us and our children. What's interesting is after the resurrection over in Acts chapter 5, when they are talking to the apostles, they say, what are you trying to do? Lay his blood on us 
And don't our children? Well, yeah, that's kind of what you asked for. Verse 26, then released, then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The, crucif- the crucifixion was reserved for murderers. The scourging was reserved for traitors. Barabbas was both. And he delivered Christ to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered into him the whole band of soldiers, which means for about, that was about 600 men. 600 men. This was going to be a spectacle. This was going to be something that they were going to laugh about. They gathered in the common hall and they stripped him and they put on him a scarlet robe. Now folks, keep in mind, this was the creator of the universe. This is the one who said, let there be light. He is the one that created man. And here is man. Mocking and treating so cruelly. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and they took the reed and they smote him on the head. I am convinced that they smote him on the head because he had the the crown of thorns on his head. And the purpose of that was to cause those thorns to sink into the brow and cause the blood to flow. It shows their cruelty. It shows what they thought of the Son of God. But they were also fulfilling Scripture. It's what God's Word said was going to happen. And they spit upon Him. I can't imagine spitting upon the God of all creation. They mocked Him and they took the robe off of Him and they put His own raiment on Him and they led Him away to crucify Him. Oh, you talk about torture. You talk about cruelty. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And him they compelled to bear his cross. Folks, physically, he got to the point where he could no longer carry the cross. He was not able. And they had to find this Simon to carry it the rest of the way to Golgotha. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. The reason for that is because gall is a a painkiller. Gall stupefies the situation so that you don't experience. Even the Romans had a little bit of sympathy for someone who was being crucified because it was such an outrageously painful, horrendous death. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with a painkiller, something to help him endure what he was experiencing. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Because he was dying for you and for me. He was suffering the pain and the torment that you and I should suffer, we should experience. But here is God in flesh, God incarnate, dying for my sin, 
dying for your sin, and he wants to pay the price. No easy way out. And they crucified him, which was about 9 a.m. on Wednesday morning. 9 a.m. on Wednesday morning, as they were preparing the lamb. All the, the, the judgment halls and the courts and the appearance and all that happened, all of that was preparation day. That was preparing the lamb to be slaughtered. Now they are slaughtering. They are crucifying him. It's nine o'clock in the morning. They parted his garments. Verse 36, and sitting down, they watched him there. And they set up over his head this accusation written, This is Jesus the King of the Jews. And people say, well, why would Pilate do that? I think he did that to tell them, hey, Here's what happens to your king. I don't think it was Pilate going, well, I want to make sure they understand that here's the Messiah. Basically what Pilate was doing and saying, Jews, you want to know what happens to your king? Here he is. He's on a cross. He's on a cross. And they that, the two thieves, that thieves were crucified there with him, the two malefactors also, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, saying, You that destroy this temple and you build it in three days, save yourself if you be the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And folks, he could have called 10,000 times 10,000 angels. He could have had himself taken down off that cross. That would have been a clear indication that he's exactly who he said he was. Can you imagine what would have transpired? What would have happened at that moment had, as he was being crucified, had he called down heaven's angels to take him off the cross? That would have gotten some people's attention for sure, but what he wouldn't have done is paid the debt for my sin and your sin. And that's why he didn't do it. The chief priests are mocking. The scribes and the elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. No, because in doing that, I would have been lost. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So from about noon to about three o'clock, there was darkness. And that's the reason, I think it's because the light of the world was going dim. The light of the world was about to go out. Even creation is groaning. Creation is suffering as the creator, as its creator dies on a cruel cross. So from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Fulfilling Psalm 22.1. But Hebrews 13.5 tells us that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. And the reason that God can make that promise to you and to me is because he had forsaken the Lord Jesus 
He had turned his back on my sin then. He had turned away from my, my sin then. It was being dealt with. It was being paid for. So now, the assurance that I have is that my sin has already had its judgment as the Son of God was dying on Calvary's cross. Some of them stood there when they heard that said unto him, I said, this man calls for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar, and he put it on a reed and he gave him to drink. And he said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50. Folks, what an important verse this is. And when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. He cried again with a, or he cried with a loud voice. We know from one of the other gospels, gospel accounts, he cried with a loud voice, it is finished. And God's word is good to give us the time at 3 o'clock because that's when the, the, the rabbis, that's when the, the temple workers, they knew to sound the shofar horn and to indicate now is the time to slaughter the lamb. Now is the time to kill your Passover lamb. It's at 3 o'clock, and at 3 o'clock, he's on the cross. He hears that horn blast. He knows it is time for him to die. He gives up his ghost. He gives it up willingly. And he cries with a loud voice because he wanted to make sure people could hear. It is finished. The debt has been paid. I have I have shed my blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Christ had shed His blood, the perfect Lamb of God. No one else's blood would have been worthy. No, blood, no one else's blood could have accomplished what He accomplished on Calvary's cross as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. That's the reason He was born of a virgin. Because his blood was not tainted. Only his blood can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, God's program, God's plan of redemption is so glorious, it's so wonderful. Man could have never come up with something like this. It had to come from the heart and the mind of God himself. He cried with a loud voice and he yields up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of their graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching, Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done. They feared greatly saying, truly this was the Son of God. The veil of the temple, that which separated the holy of holies and the holy, and the holy place, that which only the high priest could go into, it was ripped here indicating that the way to salvation, the way to redemption is now clear through the Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many women were there beholding afar off which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, 
and among which was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And he went to Pilate and he begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth. And he laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door and the sepulcher and departed. Again, fulfilling scripture. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, so the next day would have been the 15th of Nisan, which would be the Passover. Hey, the scriptures are so good about telling us exactly the timeline and how it's all coming down. So there, there's no, there, there shouldn't be any question. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priest and Pharisees came together into Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. They thought of that. They thought of that. And here we have the assurance that the tomb was properly sealed. He even sets guards to keep anyone away so they can't come and take the body. They made sure that that wasn't going to happen. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. And that's it, right? That's the end. Close the book. It's over. Not hardly. Not hardly. At the end of the Sabbath, this was the high Sabbath, by the way, so there was two Sabbaths this week. And in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Now, we need to remember, when the angel does this, the Lord Jesus is already gone. He didn't have to wait for that stone to be moved away. That stone was moved in order for them to see inside, not for Jesus to get out. He was already gone at this point. And his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not. For I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Greatest news broadcast, the greatest announcement that has ever, ever been made. He is not here. He is risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. But he's no longer there. He was delivered 
for our offenses. He paid that debt that we owed. He died. He shed his blood for my sin, for your sin, and he was raised again so that we can be declared righteous. And not just be declared right, but we have, according to the Scripture, the righteousness of God in Christ. What this story tells us is that we are able to exchange our sinful, lost condition for God's perfect righteousness in Christ. What a plan of salvation. Verse 7, the angel tells the ladies, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. They had that project. They had that work. Well, God's Word calls us His ambassadors. God's Word calls us ministers of the Word of reconciliation. God would have us to go quickly and tell a lost and dying world that Jesus saves. I hope and pray this morning that you know Christ as your Savior. I hope and pray this morning that by faith, you have done exactly what God's Word tells you you must do in order to be saved, and that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe the gospel, believe that He died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. There are no works you can do. There are no efforts you can put in. There is no way that you can save yourself. Christ has paid the debt that you owe. You believe and what you believe is important. You believe the good news. You believe the gospel. It's not getting up and walking down an aisle. It's not being water baptized. It's not, it's, there's nothing you can do. There are no works of righteousness that you can do that can make you right with God. What you do by faith is believe in the complete and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ.